So Acts chapter 1. verses uh, 21 through 22, and, and the disciples are in the upper room. Uh, obviously, there were the 12, and Judas disqualified himself, right? They're looking for a replacement. And so they're trying to find a successor for another apostle. So 21 through 22, um, somebody want to read that? So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, mm-hmm. Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Okay. Yeah, so finding a successor, there's certain qualifications, right? Yeah, the first one is, what do you see? Accompany them when they're with Jesus. Yeah, and then secondly, you have to see the resurrection, right? So you kind of get into, well, what about Paul, right? I, I think Paul, by his own acknowledgement, refers to himself as one who was untimely born, but he was a witness to the resurrection, right? So there shouldn't be an expectation that there's a continuity of these apostles. Does that make sense? Uh, if you go to a church where that's run by an apostle, now, it is true you might have missionaries, and people might say that missionaries and apostles are the same thing, but not, not in the sense of what we're talking about here, right? The direct successors to Jesus' ministry, uh, the apostles, was limited to that generation, okay? So that's one of the, so I think everyone believes in some form of cessationism, right, where we don't think that continues today. And we also believe in a sense of continuity where some of the spiritual gifts that we see like teaching, exhortation, and helps, that continues to today, right? So the issue is kind of where do you draw the line between what we should expect today and what was for that that first generation of the church? Does that make sense? So um, we kind of talked a little bit about the purpose of miracles. Uh, One of the purposes of miracles when Jesus did it was the miracles were God's way of testifying that Jesus is the Messiah, right? By doing all the healings and stuff like that, he was the coming king who pushed back on the curse. And it's something where Jesus, when he sends out the 12 and he sends out the 70, he actually delegates authority to do the same miracles. So it's very clear that there are successors, right? You know, that there is a continuity between Jesus and this next wave of apostles, or even the next wave of even the 70 of these successors to Jesus' ministry. The issue is, does it jump to that third generation, right? Should there be an an expectation that 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 should continue, or is there a different (coughs) emphasis that we see? So kind of at the center of all this is is just this idea of speaking in tongues, okay? Now, speaking in tongues has been defined in many ways. Some people will say it's their private prayer language, or they'll talk about how they speak maybe a, a heavenly language, like a language that's spoken in heaven that only angels understand. Uh, but let's look at just some of the biblical testimony. And when somebody speaks in tongues, what exactly are they speaking? What's being said? Okay, so we're kind of, Nate, we're going to start with you. Why don't you read uh, Acts 2, 6 through 8, and we'll kind of go to you, Joe, and kind of work our way down the line. When the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? 
time. So I want you to notice, like, who's hearing, who's hearing the language? Who's the audience here? Was that? Foreigners. Yeah, foreigners or people who are gathered in uh, Jerusalem during that time, right? And so what's miraculous is how are these people speaking our own language? They don't know our language, right? So there's a supernatural ability to speak a foreign language for the purpose of evangelism. You know, and what's really interesting is in the early Pentecostal movement, um, there was this understanding of tongues, and that what they would do is they would send people who were speaking in tongues over to China with the expectation that they would just pick up the language right away. Um, but then they figured out that they actually had to learn the language the hard way like everybody else, right? Um, secondly, so it's evangelism, right? That's the purpose of tongues. And then secondly, it was a the confirmation of God's work, okay? So, as you recall, Jesus says, before he ascends to heaven, in 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, right? So, you know, ground zero for the gospel, you know, is in, is in Jerusalem, right? Then it kind of goes out into greater Israel, you know, into Judah. And then it kind of goes out to another barrier, which is Samaria. And then the next barrier would be the ends of the earth, right? Now, when it goes from Jerusalem to Judea, right, that's kind of a porous line, right? Jerusalem is the capital, Judea, those are all, you know, those are all good God-fearing Jews. Right? But when you go to Samaria, you guys remember some of the sermons I was preaching on? What was the regard that the Jews had for the Samaritans? Yeah, they're mongrel people. Right? They are half-breeds with an apostate religion. Right? And so to, <clears throat> so to affirm Samaritans was kind of a pretty big deal. And, and every Jew would have been skeptical, right? Are you sure about that? Right? And so it's interesting that the next time that we see tongues recorded is in uh, Acts 8, 14 through 15. Joe, you want to get that? Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Okay. So, so when you see, when it crosses this line here, right, uh, there is kind of like a confirmation, like, it, it would be nice if when you share the gospel with somebody, there was like a, a light that went on that said saved. <laughs> ding, ding, they say it worked. Wait, well, let's keep on trying, right? Now, we don't have that in this, right? <coughs> But by them speaking in tongues, it was like the light went on, saved, right? And that was kind of the basis. It's like, well, we need to baptize these people because they were baptized by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit just said, these people are saved, right? So that's kind of the point. When it crossed this threshold. And then there's another major threshold in, um, with the Gentiles. So Acts 10, 44 through 40, 
7. Andy. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? Okay. So again, right? Now it went to the ends of the earth. At least the Samaritans described it. Let's say the Pentateuch. They would have been circumcised. They would have been eating kosher. But So you have uncircumcised people who eat bacon every day. Uh, you're telling me that those people are part of God's community, that they're saved, right? But they speak in tongues, as if they say, you know, ding, yeah, they got the save button on, right? So you have to see how tongues kind of, kind of play the key role in that. But then we have another issue, okay? So we'll just say Jesus died in 33, right? 33 AD. And two weeks after he died, there is a man in Cyprus who converts to Judaism. Okay? Is the man in Cyprus who converts to Judaism, would he be saved? What do you think? Two weeks after. Yeah, we're kind of shaking our head. No, I don't know. But let's say he was converted two weeks before Jesus died. Would he have been saved? Do you see what I'm saying? You know, there is a reality of Old Testament saints. You know, people who believed in the covenant, who had the faith of Abraham, right, that were anticipating a Messiah to come, right, and having faith in that. And men like Abraham and Moses and David, they all hoped for Jesus but didn't know him, right? And we would say that they were believers, right? And uh, let's say somebody who died a month before Jesus was crucified, or even let's say somebody who died before Jesus was born, would he have been saved? Well, he would have faith in the sign, right? So there's kind of this reality that throughout the Roman Empire, there's something called the diaspora, where you had a bunch of Jews who were uh, kind of outside of the knowledge of Jesus. They didn't really know about Jesus. They hoped for Jesus. They just didn't know him by name, right? And so were those people saved or not? Did you kind of see the problem here? Now, one of the reasons why you guys were shaking your head is you know that only those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, right, from Romans 10. One of the reasons why we have missions is that only those people who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and so we need to go out there and we need to tell them because salvation apart from personal faith in Christ is impossible. So we kind of read a very interesting story in Acts where they come across some uh, disciples. We come across some disciples uh, of John the Baptist. Okay, so we'll do a little map of the Mediterranean here. Mediterranean. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So, um, they are in Ephesus, which would be about right here, okay? So, here's Jerusalem here. So, the gospel is beginning to emanate, and it kind of, you know, the gospel will jump from here, eventually up here. Now, before the gospel went out, John the Baptist had a very active, vibrant ministry. And many of his disciples were actually going around preparing the way of the Messiah. Okay? So they would be in this category of, let's say, Old Testament believing Jews who believe the testimony of the final prophet. Okay? So with that in mind, uh, Randa, you want to get Acts 19, 1 through 6? And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on him, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Okay. So this is really interesting. It just happened, um, we'll just say, 15 years after the events here, as the gospel is going out. And what you see is they're saying that your belief in the doctrine of repentance that John the Baptist gave you, that's actually not enough anymore. You actually need to believe in Jesus and be baptized by the Holy Spirit, right? So when you kind of look at that question, at what time was it, do people have to have explicit faith in Jesus, even if they are, let's say, Old Testament saints? That's kind of like the line of demarcation, right? So I think that's kind of the theology behind speaking in tongues in that case, is from this point on, you need to have the baptism of the Spirit. From now on, everyone has to have explicit faith in Christ. You can't be a good Jew and go to heaven anymore. Does that make sense? So there's kind of like tongues... Yeah, as we go through Acts, there is like some real meaning to every time it comes up. It's making a major theological point. Okay? So then we kind of move into um, the next purpose of tongues <coughs> would be 1 Corinthians 14, 2. Those you want to For the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Okay. Now, mystery is a, is a term that when, when we read it in Paul, mystery often speaks of something in the Old Testament. Uh, I'm sorry, some new revelation from God that's not mentioned in the Old Testament. Okay, so mystery is a new revelation from God that's not mentioned or alluded to in the Old Testament. So the church would be considered a mystery. Uh, because they had no concept of the community of God's people consisting of Jews and Gentiles together. Right? So here he's talking about speaking mysteries in the spirit. Like these mysteries are meant to be, to be shared. These mysteries are meant to disclose some new information about God. And often um, when you look at when God speaks from people, he does it through a venue or through a person. Um, that is given some sort of credentials. For instance, when you had a prophet, right? Prophets would often speak direct revelation about God to God's people, right? But what was the test of a prophet? 
had to come true. Huh? It had to come true. Right. So, <coughs> so they would say some stuff that's not a future prophecy, but a present one, right? But their credentials were verified when they would predict a future outcome, and it would come true. Does that make sense? So when somebody has the gift of tongues, they're actually prophets, but one of the ways to verify is not by speaking something future to come true, but by speaking in a language that they themselves don't understand, and that is then translated by somebody else, and that would be a message from God. Does that make sense? So what I'm saying is that when you have tongue speech, tongue speech and prophecy are wedded together. Okay? So tongue, speech, and prophecy are wedded together. So any questions about that? Again, this is a kind of a nuanced case of them building. So the speaker of the tongue didn't necessarily understand what he was saying? No. No. They speak mysteries to themselves. That's a part first. They're, they're speaking something that they don't understand. And part of the reason why I'd say that is that there's a separation between the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues. So both of them are like a lock and key together. I have a question. Uh -huh. um, I spent a lot of time in college in the modern language department, and there were like maybe two people that I ran into that could learn a language quicker than I could learn a second language. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like they were on like five or six. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't consider that a gift of speaking in tongues. Like Not the ability to just pick up a language like that. Yeah, some people are just geniuses that way. Yeah, that's definitely a gift, but not necessarily the same. <coughs> gotcha. Like, I would say, um, again, it's conceivable that someone could just, like, if I were to speak Chinese right now, fluent Chinese right now, that would be a miracle. If I could speak any language, <laughs> that would be a miracle. You know what I'm saying? So I think that's what it is. It's, a, it's an actual language. And often I think what you have right now is kind of like this entranced ecstatic speech, which, you know, like certain sects of Islam, um, even Mormons, you know, it's like this ecstatic utterance um, that's not actually a language. <coughs> so tongues, when they talk about every tribe tongue, I mean, that's just another word for language, okay? And what some people will say, well, they're, they're not speaking an earthly tongue, but a heavenly tongue. But I think when you look at that passage in, um, in 1 Corinthians, if I speak with the tongues of angels, right? I think that's more like with the eloquence of angels, you know, with the highest thing. But even, even angels, like if it was a real language, right, you would have, it would have some coherency to it. It wouldn't be gibberish. You know, the thing about gibberish is it's just unintelligible sounds with no order put together. That's the genius of J.R.R. Tolkien, where he actually created his own language, right? So, it works. So with that, um, we're going to talk about just the reality of discontinuity. Now, we've kind of established that apostleship, <coughs> apostleship is something that we should not expect today. <coughs> so we get into another passage. Becky, you got this one, Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being a cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Okay. So he kind of talks about some layers here, right? 
So the first layer of the temple is what? You know, the building that we're being built together with. Built on the foundation of what? Apostles, Apostles and prophets. Yeah, with Christ being cornerstone. cornerstone. Right, so you kind of have you know, just this concept of the foundation. Oh, man. Okay. Visualize. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you got the foundation, right? Christ being the cornerstone. But notice how you have, you know, who else is part of the cornerstone? That the lower foundation. Apostles. The apostles and the prophets. Okay? So, get this. It's not just the apostles who are giving that foundational part. They're wedded to the prophets as well. So, those people who were speaking in tongues, those prophets within the church, um, men like Luke, right? He would have been a, a prophet as well, right? So, there, there's a vital link in that first foundational layer between Jesus, his successors, the apostles, and this whole group of prophets. And then there's another layer on top of that, okay? And my contention would be that next layer on top of that, you know, there's, you won't find prophets in that next layer on top of that. I'll explain more about why that's later. So Hebrews 2, 2 through 4, um, let's see, Casey, we'll have you read that. Oh, um, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Okay. So who, what's the identity of, or who, who are those who heard in verse 3? Who does that refer to? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed by those who heard. His disciples? His disciples, right? His apostles, right? And notice, those who heard, God was testifying with them, Right, by signs, wonders, and various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So there was, there was kind of a gift given to them. The Holy Spirit was confirming that they are the successors of Jesus. So no, Hebrews was likely written by a second-generation Christian who was not an apostle. He warns his audience not to neglect so great a salvation which was conveyed to us by those who heard one should note that the author separates himself from the apostles who originally heard live teachings from Jesus. The author believed the credibility of their teachings because it was corroborated with miracles. Okay? So why is it significant that the second generation author bases the credibility of the gospel on the first generation's miracles as opposed to his own? Why, why does he point out, point to their miracles, the apostles' miracles, not to his own? Because he doesn't have any. Yeah, I think that's probably likely, right? So it was their message that was confirmed. There, there doesn't seem to be confirmation of his miracles. So what's significant that the message was confirmed in verse 3? 
Yeah. Yeah, the message itself was confirmed, <coughs> right? It was confirmed because the messengers were confirmed. But the focus is really on the message itself. Does that make sense? So there's kind of a transition where, you know, Jesus taught, right? And, and none of the scriptures were written when Jesus was around, right? Who, who, how do we know about Jesus' teachings? We know it because his successors wrote down what he said. And because of the importance of, of verifying that message, they were also given the gifts of the Holy Spirit to confirm that what they said about Jesus was true. So as this was being authored, men like Peter and James and John were also able to do miracles during this season. Even Paul was able to do it during the season as well. Not all the time. I mean, there, there are times where um, he doesn't tell Timothy to go to a healer for his stomach, right? He says, drink some wine. He talks about Epaphroditus nearly dying. Paul even had bad eyesight, and he doesn't get a healer. Right, so it wasn't always, they didn't always draw upon it. There was like a function for this time. I think it was to, to lead and guide and push people towards the message that was confirmed by men who wrote. And the message would be what we have in scripture. Does that make sense? And then the, the issue would be this, and this is probably my, my greatest um, issue, is if you believe the sign gifts are for today and they're to confirm further revelation, then it's very difficult to say that the canon, right, what we have in the Bible is complete. It could still be added to. Um, one issue with, the, well, with Mormonism is they can't write a, a systematic theology because the theology is always changing because they have a living prophet. Right? So it's very possible that a lot of the Mormon teachings can be updated by the next president, right? It's a moving target. Uh, one thing with, you know, with the Bible is kind of a fixed and final revelation. Now there is going to be more revelation in the future when Jesus comes back. There's going to be some prophets that will precede him, and obviously every, you know, we'll see Jesus face to face, and we're going to hear from God every day. Um, but between now and then, the emphasis is on the scriptures. Even Peter points to the scriptures in yeah, above his own experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're making a necessary correlation between sign gifts and confirmation mm -hmm. and revealed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That you won't. That, I don't. There, I don't you don't see it. any expression of a sign gift not being outside of the sphere of confirmation. Yeah, uh, I think. Revealed. Yeah, and this this revelation. revelation. Yeah, and this is where let's say I would differ with um, Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem would say the sign gifts are for today, but he he. Um, Institutes and doesn't understand what I call diet prophecy, where it's prophecy is a word from the Lord, but it's not inerrant or authoritative. It could be wrong. But I think when you do a survey of how prophecy is used in the New Testament, there's a continuity between what we see in the Old Testament and what we see in the New So I think that's why it's really one of the linchpin things. So if prophecy is what it is, if it is a continuity of what we see in the Old Testament, then you almost have to. You really have a, a tension between saying that prophecy can still continue and the canon's closed. So that would be my argument for it. But that would be, that's one of the big uh, discussions that people have about it. Yeah. Are all terms that use the 
um, prophecy in, in our translation? Like, are they all based upon the same Greek <coughs> term, or are there a couple of them that are different, or, you know, is that? Uh, I couldn't tell you. Okay. Uh, I, the I concept is the same. I mean, prophetes is, is used, I mean, what you see in you. Yeah. yeah, the Greek translation of the Old Testament and New Testament, there is significant overlap. But some people will say, still try to say that the Old Testament prophets, prophet, that's actually what we understand as apostles. Yeah. So they'll try to make that distinction. But I think when you look at that passage in Ephesians 2, 20, you have apostles and you have prophets that are in the same layer as far as the foundation yeah. Yeah, of the church. But there is a continuity between those two. That makes sense. And I'd say those are actually separate opposites. So Good questions. You're getting into First Corinthians 14, right? Like, I can't. I don't. I just. I just, That's just like the one that's like sticks out to me. Like, uh-huh. not, it's not the prophecy in First Corinthians 14 is so different than what I see in the Old Testament. Yeah, and that's where I would go to that passage about they speak mysteries. They're speaking, I say one, First Corinthians 14, there's <coughs> a lot of regulation. But if this is a case where Paul's not at a point right now where he's saying absolutely not. Right? There still is evaluation of prophecy that's going on when he talks right. about um, First Corinthians chapter is it 11. Yeah, so there's evaluation of prophecy. You know, is this from the Lord or not? Where is that? 14. This is the one. 14, 29. Things are good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that would be my understanding. I still think that the prophecy understanding still works within this. Uh, within this framework um, because he speaks mysteries to themselves. I think when you look at how mystery is used throughout Paul, it often has this idea of something that's unknown apart from special revelation. So the evaluation that has to happen, uh-huh. what, what are they evaluating um, in 29, 1429? 1429. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, the weighing. When yeah, the is that prophet speak and mm-hmm. let the others weigh what is said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's whether or not that's actually from the Lord. If that is a true prophecy. And that's where you have like the gift of discernment. I think the gift of discernment is to discern what spirit it comes from. If it's from the Lord or from an outside spirit. So, so then what would that look like if prophecy is used kind of like a, a telling of like both Old Testament and New Testament is uh-huh. seeing like does it come true or not? Um, how, yeah. What would that flesh out? Like, how would that flesh out in this context? Sure. In like, the weighing is. It seems to me that the weighing is happening in the moment. So, someone, if prophecy is like is <coughs> foretelling, like yeah. is saying what's going to happen in the future, and the weighing happens in the moment, how did? How well, they I think do there, that? there's different kinds of prophecies, uh, like Agabus gave a prophecy of what would happen to Paul when he goes to Jerusalem, uh-huh. right? There was a foretelling there. Right. So I think even in the Old Testament, you have some prophecies where they foretell the future, and then the other ones where I'm, I have a message for you right now, right? 
And so when you look at confirmation, I think there is that future confirmation there, but I think with the, with the birth of the church, there's an additional way of confirming it, and that's for these other people to get to discernment sermon to say, yeah, this is of the Lord. Um, and I would say, um, you know, with tongues, I mean, tongues is like lock and key. You know, tongues and interpretation together, the message that's issued is a prophecy, some word from the Lord of this is what you must do. So I'd say even in the early church, I mean, there is like direct Holy Spirit guidance of these early churches as a whole thing is being formed <coughs> and put together. So you're saying in 1 Corinthians, your understanding of 14 would be that the reason you needed people to be evaluating prophets mm-hmm. is because they were still in the vague in-between mm-hmm. time where there is new revelation mm-hmm. being given, yeah, sometimes it, in church. Yeah, and there is a place like in the Old Testament where um, a yeah, deceptive spirit comes upon one of the prophets in the royal court and says, you know, you know, you'll have peace, right? So even in the Old Testament, there's deceptive spirits there that will be at odds with you know, the true spirit of God. And so there is a reality of somebody could be theoretically possessed by a demon, give a prophecy, that might even seem to be clairvoyant and um, supernatural in origin, which it is, but it's not of the Lord. So you would say that that was still happening in the Corinthian church, but that you would say that that is not still happening in our church this Sunday? Yep. Okay, because? The canon is closed, and we have scripture to evaluate that. And necessarily, it it implies in in 1 Corinthians, in the like, kind of like this transition era, that it was, uh, it was canonical. Like anything, anything that was spoken within this framework of... Mm -hmm. Prophecy would have been oh, like Lord. necessarily yeah. like written down. Like you could have written, if you would have if you would have written it down, sure. it would have been canonical. I think that's an, I think that's sometimes a distinction too. That there's there's a lot of revelation that yeah. was not recorded, so it's not necessarily canonized in my like all the teachings of Jesus that aren't recorded. Mm-hmm. The, the revelation that he gave. So the, my understanding would be that it's possible that there was some revelation during Jesus' ministry and his teaching that was prophecy yeah. from the Spirit, but it wasn't canonized yeah. into the scriptures that we need for today that God has preserved yeah. for us. So it'd be, prophecy would be a bigger circle than, than the canon. And some of that is very specific, like uh, Paul's letter to Philemon. You know, it just seems like a normal letter, right? It is a specific you know, word from the Lord to Philemon at that time. So that, that would be my understanding is that whenever you have prophecy, it's prophecy with a capital P. There's no diet prophecy. The Bible's pretty clear at certain sections <coughs> in everything. Obviously, there's room for interpretation. Uh-huh. But the Bible makes it very clear at certain points, right? Like, there will be a time when this, there will be a time when that. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if this... Uh, concept of speaking in tongues and prophecy is so foundational and so elemental to our understanding of you know the church and how the church functions now and how the church functioned then mm-hmm. why does the Bible not then say there will be a time when these will be spoken no more the Bible I, I could be wrong but as far as I'm aware the Bible never clearly states you know, these things will cease, and about something this serious to me, it feels like the Bible would say, 
there will come a time when these gifts will cease or when this ability will cease. And, and mm-hmm. as far as I'm aware, it, it does cease. Well, I would go to Revelation chapter 22. <coughs> And I want to kind of set this up where if you look at the end of Malachi, Malachi, your namesake, Malachi, um, it ends by saying, talking about the Elijah to come before the day of the Lord. And chronologically, Malachi was the last book, book written before the angel spoke to John the Baptist, you know, John the Baptist's dad and told him what's going to happen, right? So there are 400 silent years between now and then where there's a forecasting of the next point of revelation. So there's going to be further revelation. Uh, Jesus is going to come back. And so, Revelation chronologically is the last book written in the Bible. Okay? And it's a book of prophecy, and it's telling you about what's going to happen. And I'd even say in, in Revelation chapter 11, it talks about two witnesses that are going to show up um, that will be killed by the Antichrist. But he says in 22.18, uh, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, but no one adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. So the question is, how do you add to a book of prophecy? I mean, is this talking about, you know, inserting, you know, a couple of verses here and there? I would say the way you add to a book of prophecy is by saying, oh, and he missed this prophecy. And he also missed this prophecy. And actually, this is going to happen too. So I'd say the book of Revelation doesn't necessarily allow for more predictive prophecy for the future. And that's what that statement means. If go on. If um, there was prophecy throughout, uh, as, as you and Scott were mentioning earlier, mm-hmm. that was not canonized. Yeah. Um, I think two, there's, there's two questions. One, why were they not canonized? Because God doesn't make mistakes. And why why were they not applied? Um, and and because of that, um, do do they count um, as as God's will or not? If they're not inserted into the Bible and yet they were God's will, um, if they're not in the Bible and people were prophesying, then then yeah. is that not still God's will? And therefore, if somebody was to, I don't know if people prophesy yeah. anymore. If somebody was to prophesy or speak in tongues um, at this point, um, would, um, why do we have to take that as anybody's attempt to add to the Bible? Why could that not be God speaking through somebody or God uh, or the Holy Spirit um, just feeling somebody in a, in a specific way without it being an attempt to um, corrupt the Bible or add to the Bible if it was done previously as, as, as has been asserted. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, what I'm saying, one way that John safeguards revelation from being corrupted is by saying there's no more prophecy after this. The next prophecy, there's going to be more prophecy that's going to come. And it's going to take the form of the two witnesses that we see in Revelation chapter 11. So this is a way, and you look at, I mean, historically, I mean, how many, how many false prophets have misled people and created cults? Right? It's, it's super common. You know what I'm saying? So this is one way of guarding that. And I would say this, you know, why, 
you know, if there's other passages of scripture, why weren't they included? Does that make the Bible deficient? Well, I mean, listen to John's argument. One, he says in uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of this book. I'm, I'm sorry, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then he says in 21:25, now there are many other things that Jesus did. For every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So there's an understanding of his limitations that we can't write it all down. We can't record all of it. And that's not to invalidate it, but you have enough to have eternal life. Well, and the parts of it that he includes in Scripture are the parts that are not just for one person, but for everyone. Yeah. And there are lots of times, I mean, we have all through Scripture, lots of times where there's prophets mentioned and their prophecies are not recorded, where there's mm-hmm. events happen that where God comes and speaks to a person, yeah. all kinds of things that are not for us. They were for them mm-hmm. and for that time. Yeah. And so there's a difference between a prophecy that's canonized. This yeah. is for the church. This is for all God's people of all time. Yeah. And a prophecy that's for someone at that time. And so I think Revelation is clearly saying that in terms of messages about these things, mm-hmm. this is it. Yeah. I'm not bringing more. Yeah. Does that mean that God can never speak to someone in any way now that is not through Scripture? I mean, I think we have far too many stories of people who have no access to Scripture. Like dreams and stuff. Yeah. And I, I think there's ways I think there's ways of still explaining that, like just God's act of providence. Mm-hmm. You know, that that in concert with him brings somebody like a missionary in the future to prepare the way mm-hmm. that that may happen now is that the holy spirit giving him a prophecy or the holy spirit using right we would not put journey. that in the same category yeah yeah i think it's also important like because um, god has given us the bible and everything in it is what he specific is like this is important if mm-hmm. it's in here it is divine the influence divine revelation it is important mm-hmm. And it's like this stuff, because they talk about like in Matthew and Mark, it's like they didn't write on everything. Mm-hmm. They didn't think it was important to write on every single little thing because there were so many wonders that Jesus did that they just, they couldn't count. So they're like, we'll write down what we think is important yeah. that they need to know because this is relevant. Yeah, and it's interesting. Like Second Peter is really interesting because he pivots quite a bit. He says in First Peter 1, I'll start verse 16. So this is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths that when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. <coughs> For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born of him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Right? This is the transfiguration. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for which we were with him on the mountain, right? So they got a prophetic word there. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. For we know, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God and were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then when you skip ahead to um, 2 Peter 3:16, well, 3:15 through 16, it says, "And count with patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks 
in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to stand, which ignorant and unstable twist to their own destructions as they do with the other scriptures. Right, so there is an acknowledgement that Paul is actually writing scripture uh, you know, in this. I think there, there is a self-awareness. Um, Paul, for instance, quotes from the Gospel of Luke in 2 Timothy. So all of these later epistles, they're recognizing that prophecy is being written down as we speak. And so I'd say part of you know, Revelation is to basically safeguard the canon from corruption from extra-biblical prophecies. And I'd say even my you know, charismatic friends who still believe in active prophecy, they always verify it by scripture. I'm like, well, why not just go with the scripture? You know what I'm saying? And if somebody does that, I mean, I, I'm not gonna call them a heretic or anything like that, as long as it's checked by scripture. I would just say that that's even unnecessary, that for now the scripture is sufficient. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's worth saying that for evangelical uh, charismatics and Pentecostals, um, evangelical versions, mm-hmm. they don't believe they're adding to uh, doctrine. No. They don't believe in doctrinal revelation. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. a, so there's, there's a different category. One is doctrinal revelation mm-hmm. that actually adds to our, understand, our fundamental understanding of God and his purposes. Yep. And the other would be... Um, kind of like your word, or word to you right now. Yeah, I mean, in mm-hmm. 1 Corinthians 14... Uh, three says the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Mm-hmm. I think that would be the category for the most part that they're they're usually talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there, there are different levels of danger or severity in terms of what we're talking about. And so if you, the foundation of the apostles and prophets would I think fall under very clearly that doctrinal mm-hmm. revelation, right? Yeah. And because it's foundational, you can't repeat it. But the the debate among evangelicals for the most part falls in the category of does God speak today in other terms? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you go beyond and include doctrinal revelation, usually that's where you get into yeah. a cult or a false teaching. Yeah, and that's where right. you get into, is there such a thing as diet prophecy, as they call it? Yeah, where they would say there are some, you get this impression from the Lord, it's from the Holy Spirit, and maybe right, maybe not. You know what I'm saying? It's not, it doesn't carry the same weight as a prophecy that, you know, there's this, this separate category of prophecy that they have. And, I, and I, my disagreement would be that that's actually a thing. We would just not call it prophecy. We yeah, I think there's exhortation. Exhortation, encouragement, edification. Encouragement, uh-huh. and, but I'm not going to say the Lord told... I'm, I'm very uncomfortable saying the Lord showed me this. Yeah. The Lord told me this. So would you say that the Corinthians, who had to get to prophecy, mm-hmm. are part of the foundation of the church themselves, those prophets? Probably. Huh. Yeah. They weren't very good ones. Maybe the discerners weren't the good ones. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that that would be my convention. And I think there were a lot of prophets back then. But when you had the apostles to kind of regulate it. And even and the things, what, and that's what Paul does in his life. But even the things they were saying in those contexts were not things that were canonized in scripture and that are for all the church and that are forming doctrine. Yeah. So even that during that transitional period was different from what we think of as prophecy. Yeah, I think there was a there's a broader scope. Like you had the great prophets, but a prophet, like even in the Old Testament, you had a bunch of prophets that we never heard what they said. Um, but they were still scrutinized, subjected to test about will this come true or not come true? Are they speaking from the Lord? 
So there's a lot of prophecy out there that just wasn't recorded in, in Scripture. I mean, you can read the Bible out loud, like the New Testament out loud. How many hours would it take? 15? To read the New the Testament? The New Testament? I don't know. The whole thing is like 70. Yeah. So we'll say 25 hours. So yeah, there's a lot of things that were being said. And I'd even say that some of the, like, we have what Paul wrote, but some of these key foundational truths about the church and everything, if Paul didn't, wasn't able to get to them or send somebody to them, I think they would have been given a lot of that foundational stuff as well, that um, they got more continuing revelation and more exhaustive knowledge of the key things that you needed for a Christian life. So we'll kind of touch briefly with um, healings. And I guess what I would just say, I'll just read this to you and let this sit. Uh, whenever Jesus healed someone, it was always instantaneous, 100% successful without a recovery period, permanent and done apart from any major medical attention that could possibly discredit the miracle. One more aspect should be of note, in almost every case, the healing is organic in nature. Organic afflictions compose roughly a third of all illnesses and are associated with demonstrable change in bodily organs or tissue, like a broken bone, torn ligaments, paralysis, etc. This contrasts with the functional diseases uh, with a change in body tissue or organ tissue without any tissue damage, like migraine, bad back, sprained ankle. Uh, when the famed Christian illusionist Andre Cole met with Or Roberts and Benny Hinn, he challenged them to produce evidence of organic healing, one that could be explained that could not be explained away by such mental phenomena as the placebo effect. After many promises, and in one case, a book by Benny Hinn, no solid proof has been given. So, I mean, I think it's possible for the Lord to heal. Um, I think usually the healing was given to certify apostles and prophets. That's the normal use. I think it's possible. I don't think the gift of healing necessarily is continuing, although healings can happen. Um, but I do think um, the healing would be a little bit more obvious than what we'd see at a Benny Hinn crusade. Right, where my bad back is gone or I'm able to get out of the wheelchair. I mean, so um, that's kind of my take on it. But I kind of explained to you some of my conclusion. You can kind of look through it on your own. And again, this is not to be a screed against any charismatics. There are some well-meaning ones who are brothers. I do think there's some, um, some dangers to it, some inconsistencies, and that's why I'd be more of a cessationist than a continuationist. But the big thing is... Um, you know, the Holy Spirit's alive, active. He can do anything. And I think, you know, we need to be, um, you know, I think we're always looking for the healings and all these other things. And you can kind of miss you know, the great power of the Holy Spirit, which is to sanctify you and can form you into the image of Christ. And that's really the greatest miracle, right? More than, you know, fixing your migraine, right? So a lot of that can be a real distraction, I think, towards the greater work. So let me pray and I'll let you guys go. Well, Father, I do thank you for um, these brothers and sisters. I thank you that we're able to have this a great conversation and discussion about the work of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that all of us will be, um, well, just have a great sense of his power, that he will do a great work in our lives, that he'll make us like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.